Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. With Righteous Gemstones returning to HBO this month, we wanted to rerun my conversation with its creator, Danny McBride. We originally recorded this interview before the premiere of the first season in 2019. And no episode of this podcast ever caused more comedians to reach out to me than this one did. And I wasn't surprised by this at all, as, as I've known for a while that Danny is really revered by comedians. His ability to do work that is ambitious, sophisticated in its conception, really clear-eyed in its satire, but also has like big performances and big jokes is just what so many people in comedy aspire to. I know it's weird to call a person on the second season of his third HBO show underrated, but I do feel like he's a little underrated. He really is, is such a deep thinker about his work. And as a result, I feel this interview is one of the best in the show's nearly five-year history. The episode starts with the first scene of the first episode of the first season of The Righteous Gemstones. If you haven't watched, it's sort of like Succession, but set in the world of zillionaire televangelists. Because a lot of it is visual, let me just say the scene is set in a wave pool in Chengdu, China. The three male gemstones, Father Eli, played by John Goodman, older brother Jesse, played by Danny, and younger brother Kelvin, played by Adam Vine, are in the 17th hour of a 24-hour baptism. Sister Judy, played by Edie Patterson, was not allowed to attend. So, here is Danny McBride. Welcome, friend. I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. God bless. God bless. I baptize you in Jesus' name. (laughs) See? There you go. Everybody in your line keeps getting water up the nose. You're dipping them back too far. How about you do it your way and I'll do it mine? How about you do it right? How about that, huh? Okay. Watch this. Get over here. Baptize you in Jesus Christ. Smooth movements. You get that? You see how that worked? Yeah. Nobody's coughing. No water's coming out. Nobody's nose. Did you just splash me? No, I don't know who's you splashing me. I don't know who's splashing me. Do it again. Just see what I do. It wasn't... Y'all stop that. Stop that cuff and keep these lines moving. Tell him he's the one splashing people. I'm not splashing nobody. Long way we got a bogey over here. Please tell oh, him God. no photographs during the ceremony. I'll look right now if they're not going to take my picture. Order. Ah, okay. 
What the hell was that? I think somebody turned on the waves. Damn it, tell them to turn it off. Long way. How you say shut it down? Why? 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 I'm here with the writer, director, creator of the clip you just heard, Danny McBride. Thank you so much for being here. Cool. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about, uh, before we talk about this first scene in a show, I want to talk about first scenes in general, kind of go through your career a little bit of that for some context. Uh, when you went to film school, what did you learn should be in a first shot, first scene? Uh, and what did you leave sort of believing? Uh, you know, I don't know how much I learned about first shots in film school. Like, I kind of take a little bit back from, like, English class in high school, you know, of, like, uh, I was, like, hugely influenced by things like the Odyssey and these big epics. And those things would always kind of start, like, right in the middle of the action. Yeah. And uh, I, I like when movies do that. I think of things like Indiana Jones does that. So, for me, it's kind of funny to take characters that are, like – pretty average or like living an average life and then just dropping them into some situation, dropping the audience into some heightened situation. Mm -hmm. I kind of like look at it like it's the climax of another story that we don't know about and yeah. it's left to your imagination to kind of fill in the blanks. Um, so I want to go through a few projects and talk about the first scenes of those and that before we get to the gemstones. So uh, foot first way you start with, you hear talking. There, you, the first shot is of a flyer for the Taekwondo studio. The kids are talking to parents, selling them on why Fred Simmons is such a good teacher. Yeah, yeah. Who, who teaches Taekwondo? Mr. Simmons. Mr. Simmons. Do you like Mr. Simmons? Is he nice? Is he talented? Is he good? Is he very good? He's one of the best instructors in town. He is. Yes. Can he break rock? Yes. He can. Yes. With his head? And then Fred Simmons is the king of the demo. He does a demo where he tries to break cement with his elbow Shut and then down, does not succeed. Fails. Yep. Oh. <laughs> why, why was that the, the start of that? It feels like, you know, comedically that I feel like is in essence what the entire movie of The Foot Fist Way represents is like kind of summed up in that in that opening scene. You get the cringe factor that's very prevalent in that film and just the complete peek into this guy's ego <laughs> of like what he thinks he's doing compared to what he's actually doing. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we felt like that that was like a good way to sort of get kick the audience into this world. So uh, jump cut eastbound and down. The first shot, you zoom in on a baseball stadium from above. Kenny's already narrating. When my ass was 19 years old, I changed the face of professional baseball. Strikes a guy out. Catchphrase in the first <laughs> 40 seconds of the show. And then there's sort of a montage of his rise and his fall with a little anti-Semitism, the racism, homophobia. Multi-million dollar deals, endorsements. Then you jump to seven, several shitty years later. Kenny's at an orientation to be a substitute school teacher. Someone recognizes him from uh, high school and he uh, punches him. Kenny Powers! Holy shit, I knew that was you. Slow the fuck down, dude. Marcus Shank, you banged my stepsister back in high school. What the fuck are you doing back here, man? 
that also is the whole entire show wrapped <laughs> up into the uh, into the opening of that. You know, it was a we sold that show as a pilot, so we had no idea ever if we would give if we'd be given the opportunity to make that series. So I think we just put everything we had on the table of just trying to explain to the audience who this guy who this guy is, where he's coming from, like what he's done. And so by trying to do that, I think it like that's why it made sense to start that with sort of this um, this montage, basically, of, uh, of, the, of the quickest flame out in history of a guy who has these natural abilities and he blew it all uh, by just being an asshole. So, Vice Principals, the first shot is of an American flag. Bill Murray talks about raising the flag for the last time, says it's an honor. For the final time, all glory rises by these hands. They say the Pledge of Allegiance behind Bill Murray's back. They start fighting. Fuckhead. Shit, fucker. I pledge allegiance to, to, the, flag. to the flag of the United States. You know, that to us was another one that we, uh, you know, that TV show was based on a screenplay that Jody Hill and I wrote. And we pounded out that first scene. It's exactly the same as it was in the screenplay when we considered it as a feature. And we felt, once again, that it, like, it was everything that the show was about there. You know, like that show, I think, is about leadership and different styles of leadership and what it takes to be a leader. And so having these two guys with these two entirely different points of view like the bickering and fighting as the flags being hoisted. It seemed like it had a lot to say about the story and a lot to say about our country in general. Now we're at the gemstone. So you were done shooting Vice Principals around 2016. It came out 2016, 2017. Regardless of what story you wanted to tell, were there things you wanted, you knew what you wanted from your next project? You know, uh, Eastbound was so singular that it was about Kenny. I mean, obviously we had a lot of incredible like supporting characters from Steve Little to Will Ferrell to Craig Robinson to Katie Mixon and Andy Daly. There was a ton of Great, great actors in there and great characters. And, uh, you know, and we got to open that up a little bit with Vice Principals. And it's really kind of our riff on, like, the buddy comedy in a way and just sort of, like, bending the the structure of that and playing with what's acceptable in that. And uh, and I think I, I really enjoyed, like, working with Walton. I enjoyed, like, creating a character that I didn't have to be the voice <laughs> of and being able to watch him go. It was, it was exciting. And I'd been wanting to do an ensemble for a long time and wanting to write an ensemble. And so, uh, yeah, for the... The, for the for the gemstones, I really want to try my hand of like what's my riff on like the family sitcom, yeah. And uh, and I just wanted to like have an opportunity to kind of create this crazy family with all these like you know unique distinct ways of expressing themselves. When you say family sitcom, what are the associations you have with that? As, as in, in so much as you're going to subvert them, what were the things that you think are the things that you'd have to subvert? Well, you know, the thing that I wanted to – I wanted to, first of all, make sure that I achieved it, which is like I watched family sitcoms when I was a kid and, and even into my adult life because I like the world it sets up. It seems comfortable to me. You know, like you feel that the family likes each other. You feel that the family understands each other. And there's something relatable about the coziness of just the family unit. And so – for me, I wanted to make a world that like tried to do that by also like presenting these like kind of grotesque versions of that. <laughs> yeah. you know? So uh, talk a little. We'll talk a little bit about religion. Obviously, considering the setting of the show. Um, in interviews, you've talked recently about you. You grew up in a, a Baptist church growing up until your parents got divorced, and you saw how the community treated, especially you and your mom, after that happened, and that was sort of something that bothered you. You also have talked about how, now living in Charleston, you realize how much the church is still a part of people's lives. It's not like, oh, that thing we used to do. Like, it's, it's 
you know, it's an active part. So you have these sort of feelings and thoughts swirling around you, but you are an artist with a lot of ideas and a lot of feelings. What was the spark that was like, I need to do a thing about this? Like that you're like, this is overwhelming and there's enough of an idea here to keep on going. You know, it's kind of funny. Like when I moved, I lived in Los Angeles for 20 years. And, uh, you know, like I said, my, we I think we kind of stopped going to church maybe when I was like in sixth or seventh grade. So it had been a long time since I had really been to church, but up until that point, it was something that we'd go to multiple times a week. You know, yeah. my, my parents were both involved heavily in it, and I was just brought along just because I was a kid and I didn't <laughs> have a, a, any choice. You know, yeah. there would be Sundays where I would pretend like I was sleeping in the hopes my parents would forget that I hadn't, like, gotten up yet, and <laughs> it would be, like, too late to, for me to be able to get dressed to go to church. Uh so I, I think I always was sort of dragging my feet about going there. But then, like, as I got older and kind of, like, looking back on those years, there was something that was kind of cool about being a kid and being drugged to do something that you don't really want to do and forced to sit there mm-hmm. and, like, listen to these stories and listen to, the like, someone else kind of tell you what to do and how to do it and uh, and how all that information would come in my head and, it would, and I would just end up, like, doodling pictures on the pastor's face on the <laughs> church program. And, and I remember just from being a kid, like, seeing how they treated my mom after my parents' divorce, and it, it really, I don't know, even as a kid, I saw that as like, man, this is so crazy that I've had been drugged to this place <laughs> where they've been teaching you how to behave yeah, and yeah. how not to judge people, and here all these people who sit here every day and hear the same damn thing I'm hearing don't know how to like enact that. So I think even as a kid, I saw that there was a high level of hypocrisy within uh, sometimes the people who go to church. and you know, Even if you didn't have a word for it, you're like, there's yeah, a feeling. Like, this, this isn't is the, right. This, yeah. is the op- this is an irony. That this you- is like, I've barely been paying attention. I know that this is not part of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of what's being taught here. And, uh, you know, I think as I grew up, I just, we, we, we stopped going to church. And then I think I just, uh, yeah, I never kind of looked back. And yeah, coming out of Los Angeles and moving to Charleston and then seeing like, wow, church is still very much a part of people's lives and it's everywhere. I mean, yeah. in South Carolina, it's everywhere. Every like block, there's a different church. Every radio station is almost every other one is a religious station. And uh, it made me just kind of like tap back into this time period that I had kind of just yeah. forgotten about of just, you know, those Sundays of sitting there between my parents feeling pretty safe and like listening to, you know, the ways you need to behave in order to like live a good life. And it just started to, uh, I don't know, it made me just curious about, well, what's church like now? Yeah. And how is it different from when I was a kid? And that just kind of made me start examining these like mega churches and the kind of the phenomenon of these giant retail box stores closing down and how churches will kind of move into there and turn them into their own, you know, Vatican. And, uh, and it just seemed like uh, the even just seeing stuff in the news about you know these ministers that are flying in private jets or wearing expensive sneakers, they all suddenly started seeming like characters that we have created before. It seemed like a world that we were mm-hmm. ex, you know that was ripe to explore with with our lens. It seems like you did a good amount of research for it. What what was that like? How did you do it? Were there specific things you were looking for? Did you reread the Bible? I didn't reread the whole Bible, <laughs> but I read a lot of books about the Bible. Sure. <laughs> I read this like one book that was pretty interesting called Empathy for the Devil, and it's a and it breaks it's all the villains of the Bible, mm-hmm. and it's this their story from their point of view, which is something that I kind of like to do. I mean, you know, with all these stories, I'll like choose a story that feels kind of cliche and then choose to tell it from the bad guy's point of view yeah, yeah. and just sort of see what you can figure out from that. So even this guy's uh, 
dissection of the Bible that way I thought was kind of interesting. But uh, you know, I, I, one thing I've kind of done a lot now with the with writing is like I just use the internet. Like I'll find message boards for whatever the profession mm-hmm. is that I'm like going into. I did it on Vice Principles. I just would find message boards of administrators and like and finding like w- what do they gripe about? Like what is it? What's beyond just the like the basics and like what are, what really makes someone annoyed who has this job? And so I started doing that with uh with with like looking for like preachers and looking for message boards of like ministers who've like left the church and ministers who are still in the church and just trying to get it down to uh I don't know just to see what's the ins and outs of it. I mean I always kind of feel like with a job it's like finding what makes that job annoying for pers- for someone who does it instantly makes yeah. the job more relatable, no matter if yeah. you do it or not. And so I like trying to kind of find that. And I actually talked to a few megachurch pastors, uh, and they were all pretty open about like how they do business and how they talk. And because I don't think that the average, you know, megachurch pastor, I don't think sees themselves like a gemstone. And so yeah, people were willing to talk and kind of explain like how they operate. Like they don't think of themselves as. Like a villain, but they do understand they're an entertainer in a way. I don't even know if it's that. I think it's just like they're do they're following a calling, and if they're successful at it, it just you know yeah. it means things are going the way that they want them to, you yeah. know. And uh, you know, I think that the idea of false prophets is something that's been around since the Bible. So it's not like something that's like brand new to yeah. religion. It's like something that like you know in, in the Bible, it's warning people against them. And I just think it's kind of interesting that it attracts that element, you know. Well, I imagine it's also like the fable of the how to boil a frog or whatever. It's like each each level they are getting more famous and more rich. So then it's like, well, this is normal because of that. Totally. And you know, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is when they go and they plant these churches, because it's not just one mega church. It's like you make a church and then you plant others. It was kind of interesting that they were like they really do. They choose towns where there already are other churches, as yeah. opposed to putting up a town, a church in a town with no churches. And, and the reason is being because you already have a market there. And yeah. so I thought it was interesting that they that they look at that in, with a sort of like a capitalistic eye. I, and even the idea of I asked them like, how do you know if a church is successful or not? And you know what the guy, one guy was telling me was that they look at the growth of the church like every year, and if the growth isn't like what it needs to be, they replace the minister. So in a way, it's a ma- I mean, it's yeah. just like a Starbucks or something where you build something, and if you don't if you don't have the right guy running it and the numbers don't grow, like somebody else goes in. It's it's kind of I never thought about uh, about church being yeah. that. You, um, you've, you've mentioned that the, the first first version, you're going to do a story about a minister who has an affair and has to uh, recover his, his church while competing against the gemstones, and the gemstones were the villain. Did you switch it by the time you pitch it to HBO? I did. It, you know, I— uh, And how did, how did the show change sort of structurally or tonally once you realized— now it's the gemstones. Uh, I, I've been like, luckily, I've kind of like learned something through writing that I don't really, I don't like to pitch things because I feel like what happens is no matter how good the idea is, you pitch it and you think about it enough just for the pitch. Mm-hmm. You sell something, and then the moment you start really trying to crack it and write it, it turns into something entirely yeah, yeah. different. And then suddenly you're like, hate the thing that you pitched, but that's what they're expecting you to deliver. And so you kind of find yourself in this, like, where an ex- a project you were excited about has suddenly become like a term paper that you're dreading <laughs> writing. Yeah. So with this, I wrote the whole entire thing and had it done and just submitted it to them, like, this is what I'd like to do. So uh, I did. I never pitched them the idea of me just being the the shamed pastor going up, going up against a 
gemstones. But I think if I would have pitched it, that's probably what it would have been. And then I would have had to change course <laughs> because after I started writing that, I was almost like, this is too much about church. Like this yeah. is too much about uh, <laughs> the day to day. Yeah. And like, you know, suddenly wrapping it in the story of a family of gemstones, it, to me, it just became more relatable and more fun to write about the dynamic of this family that's running this in t- this giant business. As basic question impossible, how, how do you write? What does writing look like for you? Uh, when you think of scenes, do you sort of have a visual of how the scene will go first, or do you sort of have a sound of how they're talking, you know? Uh, you know, it goes back and forth. It depends on what phase it's in. I kind of find that what I'll do is I'll just kind of like throw down like ideas for scenes on index cards, and I have like a massive, massive bulletin board I had built that just takes up a whole entire wall on my house, and I just will throw those scenes up, and by before I write, there'll be hundreds of scenes in there that aren't connected, and then I'll just kind of slowly start pulling scenes off, like I don't want to write this, I don't want to write this, and you kind of get the scenes down lower. And then from that, always uh, an image emerges. Like you can kind of design yeah. a story based on how all these things fit. And I started doing this on uh, really, I guess, on this show and on the last thing I wrote before this, uh, where I started also doing this thing of just having one document for a project and not having like multiple files on my computer that have all different versions of something. Yeah. I just have one document and I'll start with just like, the, the most bare minimum beats of just exact, like what I think the scene's going to be. And then I just keep working and force myself to never start a new document for that project and just stay on that one. And every time I open up my computer, I'll just add something to it. So it might be, you know what, I'm going to go put scene headings on these beats. And now, you know what, I'm going to throw in like some dialogue on this thing. And what ends up happening is you end up just finishing the script before you realize you've even started the yeah, script yeah, yeah. because you're never staring at like a blank page trying to figure out the weight of the whole thing. You just kind of move around and and bang out what makes sense, and then it all kind of comes together. So this scene that we're, we, we've played and we're talking about, which is the, the opener of the pilot, did you envision that as the opener? Was that a, a scene you had envisioned, then you're like, oh, actually, you can put that here? Uh, yeah, the opener, I just I felt like I wanted that same thing. I wanted to drop in in a heightened situation with these characters to really see the scope of what they do. And so for me, even it being something that's outside of America, like these people are international and they fly on planes and they go around the world <laughs> doing all this crazy stuff. And I actually, I saw a mass baptism in China in a wave pool uh, on YouTube. And so <laughs> I was like, this seems like a plot that the gemstones would have. And, uh, you know, originally the scene was written to be in the middle of the day. Like I had an idea that would start on the sun and you'd be on a man's face being baptized and you look up to the water and there you see John Goodman's face baptizing this man. Well, we shot this whole show in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. It's, a far, it's long, far away from China. So, uh, But they did have a water park there. And uh, so we went through all the legalities of trying to get the permission to shoot there. And a week before we had a shoot, I'm not sure if they like saw the content or if they just saw the 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 health risk in like yeah. having a full film crew there while kids are st- are still going down water slides. But they basically told us that we couldn't shoot the show there, that we couldn't do that oh, wow. scene there. And we were like, well, what's the problem? And you're like, we can't do it while the park is open. And so I was like, well, damn, well, when's the park not open? And they're like, you know, we close every day from like six to nine in the morning. And so then I thought, sat on that for a while and thought, you know what? What if this thing happened at nighttime? That's why it's a 24 hours. And then it was like – and so then I just made it a 24-hour baptism, and this is hour 17. It, it's interesting what you said before, which is you like the idea that the opening scene is essentially like the last scene of a different story. And in many ways, it feels like it's the last scene of 
a, almost a happy story about their mother and then like their mother losing they're losing their mother and like their, their last memory we're going to do this baptism which was her greatest dream thing. yes so why Chengdu China uh, I think international, but I, what I, are I you think thinking we, about that? I think that is where I saw the baptism. There's a massive water park in Chengdu, China. So that was, uh, well, I just knew enough that like, well, there's a water park there that looks like what this, what I want <laughs> this to look like. It, it was, it was interesting because I, I searched to see if there's Christianity in, in Chengdu, like, and Chengdu seemingly is one of the more, well, was, or it's hard to, you know, it was more, one of the more Baptist of Chinese cities. Um, though in the last year or so, seemingly China has been uh, banding the churches that are there. So I wasn't sure if you're like, these are people that are not only going around the world, but they are putting Christianity in a place that like actively does not have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I think that is part of the appeal of that, of like why, you know, like they're, yeah, the gemstones play by their own rules and they're going where they want to and jamming themselves into people's lives. We'll go through. So essentially each character, you you, you have a little bit of what they're doing and you can uh, you can explain why this is what you have them doing. So uh, it starts with Jesse correcting Calvin's baptism style, and then he tr- starts to show off how you're supposed to do it. Then Calvin splashes Jesse. Jesse splashes Calvin back. Eli tells them to stop, and then he tells their Chinese translator to get rid of someone who's filming them. What does that part, sort of before the stakes increase, what did he want in those sort of 30 seconds of dialogue try to communicate about these people. You know, just to kind of show what this dynamic is here. Like, I feel like Goodman kind of seems more like you're like what, how you would imagine, like the, the head of one of these religious households. Like he's, he seems no nonsense. He seems to be capable at what he's doing. <laughs> and he, he, he embodies what I imagine, uh, you know, the patriarch of a family like this would be. And then I think with each step of Kelvin and Jesse, I think you just started getting in there and showing that idea that like, you know, Jesse's hard on his younger brother. His younger brother's trying to pave his own way. And uh, it all just, I think just the natural dynamics that happen, I think, with any sort of siblings and just letting that happen Mm -hmm. in a wave pool at nighttime. (laughs) So then the wave machine happens and it feels... I don't know, like biblical in a, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> like the seas were supposed to part. <laughs> Did, was that symbolism that you were yes. thinking? <laughs> we, we pepper the show with, with weird Bible symbolism <laughs> everywhere. And uh, yeah. Before we talk more about the characters, you also directed this episode. So I wanted to talk about shooting and editing this scene. The scene is very funny. It's, it's probably one of the funniest, like the most capital C comedy scene of the entire series. Uh, but it also feels like it was shot and edited like a horror scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Is, would you say that's correct? Can you talk about your approach? Yeah, it, it, that, I think that is correct. I think it's a disaster for the gemstones. You know, as you get into this series, you know, you're, you're right in the idea that this was sort of like a send off for mom. This is what mom always wanted to do, and she's passed and hasn't had the ability to. So I think when they approach this, uh, Kelvin, Jesse, and Eli imagine that this would be like nice in mom's honor. And instead it's a total shit show. (laughs) And that's sort of like the horror of where the gemstones are when the story begins is that there was someone who was so powerful and so strong uh, at the center of this family and she's now gone and there's nobody around that's righteous enough to sort of take her place. And they're trying and it's just obvious that it's like not working. You know, we shot that like I said, at nighttime when I was directing it, it was probably the biggest pain in the ass to shoot of any of the scenes we shot because in between every single take, I had to like trudge through the wave pool 
to go up to Video Village and like look at the monitors to see if we have it and then get back in the water <laughs> and wade back out. Uh, I think we had 500 extras there that night and everybody was like worried like, oh, they're going to, you know, they'll probably leave after 10 o'clock at night. And so we were worried that we were going to have fall off. But the people that showed up were amazing. Like they, yeah. they had a blast, I think, because every take a wave pool would come on and everybody got to pretend like they were in a disaster movie and people stayed till the sun came yeah. up. The first shot that sort of opens is a lantern is floating in the water, and then there's sort of a reflection of sort of neon light on the water. Then you you pan up, you sort of see some of the robes of the people. What is the significance of this? As a, you know, this is a visual medium, but you're a director. You did that on purpose. I really wanted it to be a little confusing of yeah. like, is this some sort of like, this is a like a serious service? Is this a serious ceremony? You know, you don't know if it's like a Flaming Lips concert or <laughs> what, what this is, you know. And uh, so the idea was just, yeah, to kind of just fake out the audience. A little bit there, like start with stuff that feels like maybe a little traditional, and yeah. then you're like, "What is this?" The more you see of it, there's a shot that that where you you keep on cutting to their legs underneath the water. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking of that? It's it's really. <laughs> I think <laughs> one's just silly to see yeah. like what, what what's under there, but it also reminds me of Jaws or things like yeah. that. Like there's some sort of danger under there. Uh, and there's the part where one person's climbing out of the pool and then someone pulls them down, yeah. as if there's a reason both of them couldn't. <laughs> You know, it's just showing that these people have a long way to go on their Christian journey. (laughs) So a funny thing happens when reading interviews with you over the years. So you read interviews around Eastbound and you're talking about how great improv is, how in every scene you you make sure you shoot two and then you improv because that's always better. And then when you get to Vice Principal, you're like... Improv is distracting. I hate when you see camera set like you can. It's you see movies and you can tell they're about to do improv because camera setups. Um, I don't know if there is in this scene where you sort of now with improv and also sort of why is important for you at this stage in your career where you're still making comedies, but you're sort of prioritizing the 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 hard script and sort of the visual setups. You know, I, I you know what's weird is I think it kind of turned for me. I saw like an interview with Greta Gerwig talking about Francis Ha, and like I thought for sure when I saw that movie that it seemed like they just improv that whole yeah. movie, and it was in. You know, I thought the performances in it were awesome. I loved the style of that movie, and I remember seeing that interview and like being blown away that they didn't improv anything, that it was all planned out. And and I think for me, I was like, that's what I want to do. It's like that's what I liked about the improv is that it felt rough and loose and uh and real and i was like yeah that's i want to try to see if i can plan for it to be mm-hmm. that way and you know they did such an incredible job with it in that movie that uh weirdly yeah like francis ha is an influence on on what i'm doing <laughs> <That's the headline>. <laughs> <laughs> um you know you've talked about how eastbound down was sort of pitched as hypothetically a story in three parts though you knew it might only be one and then ended up being four and vice principles you're like this is two parts we're shooting it all together. Did any? Did you have something similar for this? Were there sort of long arc plans? And how does that sort of relate to how the narrative is hopefully um, unfolding? I, you know, for this, I do have plans. I, I would, I, I like feel dumb saying I have plans for it to go long because then this will be the one that I don't have an opportunity <laughs> to make it go long. But I do like. For me, I want to tell like a sprawling story yeah. here that like by the time the whole show's done, you'll have like met different generations of the Gemstones family. You'll have jumped back and forth in time, and uh, and you'll really kind of like a Thornbirds or some <laughs> kind of massive you know family saga. So I really feel like with this first season, my main goal was just to set the table of who this family is and yeah. what they're up against. And you know, there's so many characters in the church that I want to explore, and just other people in the gemstone circle that we haven't met from 
cousins to distant relatives to just other megachurch pastors, you know, and uh, and so I hope that we have an opportunity to kind of to to take this show where we would ultimately love to take it. Yeah, it's really interesting because the first season does at least the episodes I've seen. I watched I've seen the first six episodes, and it it does not go in direct order of what you would think. You'd be like, oh, this action happened, so the next scene will be they'll be like. It will be touched on in this episode, but actually, like the episode's about, it's like much more like a, almost like a novel than a TV show or, or a movie. Totally. Was that sort of the intention? It it was the intention, uh, yeah, to have this unfold like it's a novel. I mean, we we hit that especially in that episode five and in the interlude, where like you kind of end on this cliffhanger at the end of four, and then the show just totally <laughs> shifts gears and goes back to 1989. And <laughs> I love doing that, and uh, maybe it's part of an influence. Like the last like year, I kind of was getting so burnt out on like watching the news and being seen all this stuff day after day and just all the rhetoric and everything is just so heightened and loud that I would like kind of made a, a pack with myself that I was going to just try to stop watching it all and like stop like surfing on my phone. And every time I felt the need to do that, to just like pick up a book and read. Mm-hmm. So I'd set this like goal for myself to read 50 books this year. Oh, wow. And I've been like piling through <laughs> it. But I think that the structure of novels and uh, I do think that that's like kind of seeped over now into how I was approaching breaking down these episodes. So when you, especially as you were getting past the first episode, when you're having you have a room. How do you use a room? You know, I don't. Were you running the rooms of the other shows? How do you sort of use a room for a show like this? It's always been different. You know, on Eastbound, it started out with that was just Jody and myself, and then we like pulled on like one or two people we knew, and so the rooms on Eastbound were always very small, like usually less than five people. Vice Principals was the first time we had a real deal, like larger writers' room, but even that I think was like eight people. Yeah, but. Vice Principals took the longest to write of anything we wrote, and I think it was partly because of having to run a room and having to read people's stuff that isn't necessarily what you need, but you're trying to keep people involved and give them notes and all this stuff. So I just kind of, you know, I, I, you know, I got through all of that stuff, but then I kind of realized like, I just need to write this and I need to use uh, these other talented writers to like stake out ahead and see what I'm not seeing where, what storylines aren't going to add up at the end of the day. And so I basically just kind of like spread apart the room and just threw everybody down the road to like work on the end of it Mm -hmm. while I was kind of working on the beginning with John Kachuri and Jeff Bradley, two of the, uh, of the other executive producers. And yeah, we just kind of like met them in the middle and then just kept going, you know, but it was really just to see sometimes you'll come up with ideas and you'll think that there's going to be some big payoff for them or it will play out in some way. It's interesting. And you get to the end, you're like, man, it was all of this for this, you know? (laughs) So I kind of liked attacking the beginning and the end at the same time to just make sure that it all was going to work. Yeah. Cause you'll have, you'll buy, if you're doing that, you'll have a peak of what the end is like. You're like, Oh, this is not worth, this is not worth all this setup or I don't need this much setup to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk more about your character and specifically, uh, not just because, uh, it has my name, or he has, I have his name, but, uh, because, you know, people tune into this show on HBO. They'll see it's created by you and see you with, like, a new funny haircut. And then there you are, sort of a new sort of funny asshole buffoon guy in the first scene. And add to that that I imagine people in real life always assume you're these guys. Yes. In a lot of interviews, I'll listen to you and people will be like, oh, that first five minutes where they realize you're not. <laughs> yeah. Who is this boring dude? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about a desire to fuck with audiences' expectations. When you're creating someone like Jesse, or at least when you decide you're 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 gonna play him, are you thinking how to build him to subvert people who are looking for Kenny or or Gamby? Like are you now 
riffing on what their expectations from the things that we've already seen? I think that to an extent, you're always thinking about that because I, when you start a new show, you're, you're trying to think like, well, what am I going to do this time? You know, and, you know, that was one reason why I knew it was time to be done with Eastbound is because we got to a point in the writer's room where we were just like coming up with ideas of what we hadn't done before as yeah. opposed to like what was a good idea. So at that point, it was kind of like, man, I feel like this is like a boring place to write a story when you're just trying not to repeat yourself. So for us, it's more like just setting the table. I've almost approached the shows more as a writer than as someone who's going to have to perform in it of like, how can I structure this show or, or the setup for the show to not like have me instantly be in same like writing scenarios I just was in yeah, on yeah. VPs. And I think with VPs and with this, I think there's a little bit of something of like in the first episodes or two, we will do things that I feel like are like throwing out a bone to the people who just watched the last thing we did and seeing certain similarities in that and then quickly like trying to downshift it. I felt in the first episode of Vice Principals. I think if anybody was coming off of Eastbound, they're like, here's Neil Gamby. Here's the new guy who's going to say shit that's crazy. Yeah. And then you quickly just take it into another direction and introduce Lee Russell. And then you kind of try to subvert whatever yeah. they're there to, to arrive at. And I think I do that the same here as well. It's, you know, playing off of that dynamic between Walt and I, I think when you come into this, I play, I leaned heavy in the beginning on, um, uh, on Divine and Mai's relationship, you know, but quickly that evolves into it's about this whole family. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, it's just sort of to give a little nod to the people who just came from what we just did and then evolve it. Yeah, I think watching sort of the all your work in order to prepare for this, I was thinking that like in many ways, a lot of these characters will have the same genetic code, but then they have like it's all nature versus nurture. Like their natures might be the same, but their nurtures are completely different. Like this person came up in a very different surroundings. You know, you, you've talked about um, that a lot of the characters will have ideas of masculinity from previous decade and everyone's moving forward and they're still in the past. But, like, this is a character where he's allowed to be in a world where everyone agrees with his vision yes. of masculinity. Yes. And, you know, and add also the fact that sort of where Gamby wants this power and um, Kenny Powers wants to be sort of this... And this person has those things. He does have money. What... What does this world do to this character? You know, it's like Gamby and Kenny to me, as a, you know, looking at it from a writer's standpoint, it was like both of those guys are dudes who walk around with like a chip on their shoulder because they don't think they've got what they thought they deserved yeah. in this world. You know, like they don't have the respect or the power or whatever it is they thought they were owed. And with this, they actually have everything that they've <laughs> ever wanted. And they're just as unhappy yeah. as the guy who didn't. I, I think with Jesse, like part of, and this is what you kind of get into later into the season, but with Jesse, it's like he's born into this like corporation basically. And there's an obvious like path for him to have continued success. But at his core, he's not cut out for what this job is. And yeah. he's not really being honest with himself of who he is. And it's causing him to sort of live this duplicitous lifestyle where he's constantly like showboating or, you know, putting emphasis on other parts of his personality to sort of hide like what the truth is, which is that this is a path his father and his mother chose. And it not, might not necessarily be the path that's right for him, even though it pays very well. What does he believe in? Uh, I think he believes in God. I think he is a believer, but I think that he has an enlarged sense of who he is. I think he kind of feels like he transcends judgment, you know? I think he feels <laughs> like he is... Uh, <laughs> I think he thinks he's doing such a good thing for the world that it's okay if he has shortcomings. 
So, as I mentioned earlier, the Gemstones were originally the the villains of a different show, uh, so it's not surprising that you'd want to make them what the show's about, because, you know, as we've talked about, at least with Vice Principals, you talked about Gamby and Lee were the, the, the villains. I feel like the, the biggest difference, at least from what I've seen, is the other characters, there isn't a clear moral compass of the show. You know, at least in the episodes I see, no one sort of comes out clean. There's sort of people that push back, but then you also see that they're also self-interested in their same way. The last time we spoke, you, talk, you spoke about how you like to use the conventions of TV where the audience is trained to like a character to force them to root for whoever the lead character is, regardless if they're bad people. But how do you do that? And how do you do that in practice without leaving the audience having like nothing to hang on to? And how do you do that when you have an audience that knows your work and knows that you're doing that? <laughs> you know, that was part of the idea of like, to me, the gemstone family as a whole is the equivalent of Gambier or Powers, you know? And they're, the problem is that their like moral compass is no longer living. She's yeah. not there anymore, you know? And so I think there's something that, uh, as fun as it is to watch them all sort of spin out of control, uh, there's like real pain at the center of that. You yeah. know, I think you don't have to be a megachurch pastor to kind of relate with the idea of what it's like when somebody who has a powerful influence in a family is gone yeah. and and how people have to sort of adjust to that and what, who, so I think it's like giving them a relatable struggle at the end of the day, which is loss and grief and, uh, and, and and I think that makes them like relatable. But I think the joy comes from like watching how exaggerated their reaction <laughs> is to something like that. Yeah. We're right back with more Danny McBride after this word from our sponsor. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com 
and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Danny McBride. So, you know, a lot of conversation around vice principals was sort of, you, which you'd sort of an intentional, which is sort of you had them be so bad up front. Like, episode two, you intentionally were like, here we go. We're, they burned this lady's house <laughs> down. And then, you know, and some people were like, it, it, the show fails to condemn their characters or whatever. And then it, it was clear by the end of the first season and through the second season that um, – as you said, to be the first season was the crime, the second season was the punishment. This this show does not work that way. It, it's it's their sort of relationships to their bad behavior is different. Can you kind of explain how you walk the line this time? You know, I think it's just like we had more of a we had more of like a, a target with uh, with vice principals. You know, there was like it, it was a story that was completing itself. So part of the you know, that idea of separating into two parts, crime punishment is like integral to kind of what it was all about. Uh, this, I don't think this at the end of the day is necessarily about condemning somebody or like making people pay. I think it's just, I mean, I think it is just telling the story of this family that's corrupt and, uh, and what happens from that. And like, what happens when we set out on these goals and ambitions of like having everything we want and creating this amazing world for yeah. ourselves, but how, you can lose your way on the path to that and, and how you kind of have to look to your family to find your way ultimately. I've heard you joke about how you pitch this to HBO as a trilogy but then realize it's not really the same. Mm-hmm. But in, there is one way where it does feel like a trilogy, which is you, you've talked about how Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals are shows about dreams and dreamers. And I feel like this show also has that aspect to totally. it. Totally, yeah. Um, what do you hope the show says about dreams and dreamers and uh, the throne that uh, America? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that if you really think about it, I'm like on our dollar bills, it's like in God we trust. Like this country was built upon religion and freedom of religion, and you know, I don't even ha- I don't even know enough about religion to have any sort of crazy judgment about what I really think or don't think. I uh, to me, I think it's just more or less like just. Like, it's crazy to think that we're at a place where, like, you know, churches used to just be small little rooms yeah. and people there, and we're at a place where it happens in coliseums. And uh, and I think this show's about just, like, questioning, have we lost something along the way to this greatness, yeah. you know? I found some old quote where you and Jody were saying you want to make the Southern Godfather. In some ways, <laughs> is this the Southern Godfather? There is definitely hints of that aspiration here. Jody and I always wanted to make, like, a Memphis Mafia, like, Dixie Mafia movie. And so uh, that was, like, part of the idea with this is, like, kind of presenting this family almost like a crime family, you know, but they're obviously ministers. And uh, and, and a lot of that trickled over and even just Jesse's wardrobe. Like, I just, like, really went for, like, yeah. you know, what a guy in the Memphis Mafia in the 60s would have looked like. Did you have you watched the session? There is also a bit of like these shows airing the same time. I, that's just, I need to watch it because I feel like I don't watch any TV, so it's nothing against Succession. But now that we're paired with them, I think I need to like pay attention. So in many ways, they they are like mirror images of the idea of family as family versus greed. And how, how see the people at HBO know what they're doing. Yeah. They <laughs> um, you know, Holly Hollywood does not do that much work in general about religion. I think like generally even positive shows about religion, negative shows, it just doesn't do it. And you, and um, you've talked about how comedy about religion tends to be really bad because it tends to be holier than thou, uh, pun, pun intended or ironically enough. Um, you talked about like this, the secret here was not making fun of people's beliefs, right? It's about these characters. It's not the sort of people there. But how do you do that 
when you are showing these people willfully going to a bit, arguably a somewhat nicer preacher to this uh, church that's in a mall. Well, I think that it's like, that's just kind of what happens. You know, the gemstones are, one thing we want to make sure is that the gemstones are good at what they do. Oh, like if, yeah. if the gemstones were not good at what they do, I think it would fall into that. Well, like these people are idiots to not see what these guys are doing. But I mean, you can look at the most successful megachurch pastors and like, if you're not like on board, you would be asking the same questions. How can they turn a blind eye to this guy having three jets? Or look at the, how expensive his tennis shoes are. You know, so like, to me, that's just the reality of what it is. And so it was important, I think, just to make the gemstones good at what they do. Yeah. So I think when they have that mega church and that Coliseum and they have the rock band, like we're not making any jokes about that stuff. It's just kind of portraying it of how that stuff really plays and how it looks. You've talked about how the show is sort of about the hypocrisies of the people that proclaim to be moral. Um, something about there's, – there's a part – I can't remember which character was complaining about Hollywood – is that was Jesse? Yeah, Jesse's yeah. always he always is a bone to pick with Hollywood. Yeah. So, and you are playing Jesse, and you have moved to South Carolina, and you have problems with certain parts of Hollywood, as anyone would. Um, is this somewhat? Are there? Is is this either a metaphor, partly for your feelings about Hollywood, or do you just feel like that part of your frustrations also gets as this is sort of. There are clear comparisons between this and the entertainment industry. Yeah, like I, I think that it's like I think at the end of the day, it's almost like a, more of a comparison than like a personal gripe. It's the idea that like I know people. Even when I told people I was moving to Charleston, South Carolina, and Hollywood, like everyone had an opinion of what that was going to be like and what everyone there was going to be like when they didn't know anyone from there, and it wasn't kind of like what people told me it would be like. And I think that the South has their own opinions about what people in Hollywood are like. And I don't think it's, I think that that, I think that that's also not an entirely true representation. So in some ways I almost feel like these megachurch pastors have more in common with Hollywood yeah. than what either would probably like to assume. There's a line later in the episode, uh, which I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, but they're, they're in the mall and saying they're opening a church in the mall. And the character, I think it's um, Kelvin says, capitalism is crumbling and they and we're here to replace it. As we talk about how all these characters sort of reveal themselves uh, to be villains in certain different ways, it overall gives a sense of like there is no answer. Uh, what is the belief of the show? Is it a nihilist show? Um. You know what? I don't think the show is a nihilist show. I think that as you see it, as it goes through, I, I you know, I think at the end of the day, it's a it is a show about family. It's in a show about like people trying to figure out like what how they can kind of get through each day. Mm -hmm. And some people obviously turn to religion for that. Some people turn to drugs and sex for that. And some people turn to family and friends. And like, this isn't really, this is just sort of kind of portraying that of like, this are all people who are trying to find yeah. how they work here. Looking back in the Vice Principals press, people uh, love to ask you about politics, even though the show was finished before the election. You know, and you, you said to me you didn't necessarily equate art with things that are happening politically generally. You sort of don't necessarily make that. But you're also aware that it wasn't not what the show was about, the sort of thing that they're they're comparing. Um, going through that experience, I mean, this show has more sort of direct political lines in it. Um, certain characters' beliefs that are what we'd call sort of political, though not like about the president generally, but going through the experience of people now expecting that from you, that that shape how you approach that show. Do you feel like the show does not necessarily make a statement, but sort of has a more of a political bent or 
I don't feel like it has more of a political bent. I mean, I think that there's more here for like for for people to like latch on and put their own thoughts on it. But I kind of just feel like for me as an artist, and it's not like trying to dodge a question or even dodge a point of view, but I just feel like if you're a writer, if you're an actor, you have an ability to sort of affect people's minds and how they think in a way that I think is more impactful than like doing the same thing pundits do. And so for me, I just am always like, I see what everyone's fighting about and it makes me just kind of like think about, well, what do I think and what do I believe in and how can I address that in a way that's more creative and uh, maybe is at the end of the day better than just posting something that somebody's tweeted that pisses me off or screaming yeah. at someone who doesn't agree with me. Uh, I don't see the world as like blue or red or black or white. I mean, I think that the truth of it is that that's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, people that disagree with us aren't necessarily our enemies. It'd be easy if they all were just if the person you don't agree with is the worst person in the world. But I think the world is much more complicated than that. And I think that that's apparent in all the stuff that I've made with Jody and David. It's always about exploring the gray area. It's always about starting with someone that you know you have an opinion on and then seeing that, you know what, despite it all, there's probably more in common with this person I disagree yeah. with than there isn't. Yeah, I mentioned a little bit about secession, which, uh, you know, this it's a New York version of this or this is Southern. Do you feel like this is a distinctly Southern story? And what does that mean, if or if not? I think it is a Southern story. I mean, I think we doubled down on it being set in the South and, and kind of, uh, you know, and, be, and the characters are definitely Southern. And, uh, it, you know, so I think it, I think in that regards, it is, you know, that that's a region of the country that I've moved back to. And I have a lot of fondness for it. And I also just don't see a lot of stories that are alike, you know, from that region. Mm-hmm. I talk about with uh, with Jody and David, I was talking with them about, you know, it's crazy that the film industry is just one of those industries that is only based. It's an art form that's only based in like two places. It's yeah. basically in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah. And like, that's it. And you think about other industries like the music industry, like it would be insane if the only music you got was from New York or Los Angeles. Yeah. And there was no Detroit, there was no Nashville, there was no Austin. And, uh, so I like mean, people are only allowed to paint in one city. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So I mean, I I feel like if you're from a region, if you're from an area, you're from a background. I almost kind of feel like it's your duty to like get stories out yeah. that just reflect a little bit of what you see because I think it's different than what people see in outside of those areas. You know, we we talk about how you know a lot of Hollywood when they do stories about the South, they don't totally get it get it right. And then you, you you're proudly from the south, so you're like we're gonna take southern we're gonna tell we're gonna tell southern stories, and the stories you tell are sort of about these assholes and these idiots and these villains. Um, you know that is a it's a funny thing to be like only I could tell this story. <laughs> the South sucks or whatever. But you know what does it mean to be a, a Southern storyteller? Well, I think that even regards to that, it's like we always make sure that no matter what the world is, it's like you know these are bulls in China shops. All these characters yeah. are, and so we always try to make sure that like the joke isn't about the location. You know, on Eastbound, it wasn't like. We made, you know, Jennifer Irwin or John Hawks like, you know, buffoons like Kenny, you know, if we would have done that, then Kenny wouldn't have stood out, you know. So I think that the way our humor works is you take these heightened characters and you just like unleash them into like a grounded world and then their behavior just sticks out way more. And it's Mm -hmm. like it's more cringy. It's more uh 
it's just harder to bear and stomach. And so I think the reason why we set them in the South is not even because there's some agenda, but really because I know I know the things about portraying the South that will make the South feel like it's a real place. Yeah. From strip malls to chain restaurants to half-closed-down shopping malls. I mean, it's stuff that I see and I know. And uh, so for me to write a grounded world so that I can kind of create heightened characters within it, it just that I can speak to that better. Like if I tried to write a story about Kenny Powers in New York – it would be terrible. I would like everything I'd be taking about New York would be what I saw on Sex in the City. It would just be like <laughs> <laughs> that'd be really that now that's that's an HBO crossover. Um, do you you were living in the South? How do you you know? I have no sense. I don't speak to Southern audiences and any time in the South. I'm not like, what do you think about Danny McBride's work? And maybe I should, but there is sort of. <laughs> The bubble that sort of I live in, you sort of there's this perception of like, well, you're getting it right, but ultimately your audience is just an HBO audience. It might be more coastal leaning or whatever. Do you feel like, and are you getting a sense from talking to people that like in the South they are happy with your work? Uh, and does that matter? You know, I think, look, you're going to put time and energy into something. You take time away from your family to do this stuff. You hope that it lands with people. But at the end of the day, I think. These stories, as pretentious as it sounds, aren't necessarily like things I'm like choosing. Like, this is it. It's like they just, the story that you're going to write just kind of comes to you and you kind of know, yeah. like, oh, this is what my mind is pushing me into now. And so I just follow that. And at the end of the day, it's like I know I got out what I wanted and what I wanted to get out there. And so, I mean, I would like for people to appreciate it. But if they don't, I guess that's not a requirement. <laughs> yeah. you know? You've said good comedy is specific. I mean, a lot of people have said good comedy is specific, but you've definitely have said good comedy is specific. And the problem with a lot of comedy movies is you can't be specific when you're appealing to a general audience. You've now you do not go into films to make comedies, but you've now been making comedies professionally for 15 years. Has your comedy gotten more specific? And what does that mean? You know, I think maybe it's just that I've just like gotten older and matured and I know I've been exposed to more things in life. And, uh, you know, even just this uh, following a career and following the ups and downs of it or the successes and defeats or having a kid and, and watching things that, you know, you did. And then watching that be passed down to your kid and trying to figure out how to stop them from making the same mistakes you have. I think it's just like living and growing more and just having more to kind of talk about maybe. You know, this is the... Another, you know, you're making comedies. This is a comedy. There's very dramatic parts in it. We, there's obviously there's that was the horror element that we talked about. Um, you were not planning on being a comedy person. That is, now that you are making comedy, is comedy a thing that is important to you? Do you now realize like, oh, this is what is natural to specifically your your voice. I think the stuff that I tend to like the most are like stories that don't subscribe to a certain set of rules for yeah. the genre. You know, like I love how the Coen brothers can weave comedy with suspense, with just balls out originality. And I, I feel like that's what I like. I, I like something that you don't know what you're getting into because the people that are behind it are not subscribing to the rules of the genre. Yeah. And, uh, and so for me, like the idea that there's some kind of rule to what a comedy needs to do or not do, I just have, I never look at stories yeah. that way. I mean, cause I feel like my life isn't that way. It's not like on a bad day, there's not funny things that don't, you know, that happen. It's, you know, I feel like it's more reflective of how life is that there's wild ups and downs. And, you know, obviously you have to balance that with the tone so that like an audience, if you're expecting someone to be poignantly touched by something like, you know, a scene earlier, you yeah. don't have them laughing at a fart joke. But I think sometimes 
that's what we try to do to ourselves. Like we try to figure out like how far can we go and then how quickly can we get someone to feel real emotion. And I think that's constantly what David, Jody, and myself are constantly trying to do. I'm just like play with the rules of what you can get away with. Like not even in sense of like how like grotesque or obnoxious can we be? It's more like, can you make someone laugh at this joke here? And then two minutes later, have them have a tear in their eye because yeah. they feel real emotion for a character who just did that. And so I think we're constantly playing with it, that. But is, is comedy the thing that you like playing? It feels natural for you to play with, right? You can play with the conventions of drama. You can play with the conventions of period. It does. It, it, I mean, it feels like all of our, you know, that is what Jody and David and myself have always worked on together. But uh, and so we do have, there's a level of like fun with it. And I think with these shows, obviously, we're making this at HBO. Each of these are, you know, they're not like hiring us to, you know, make the next drama, you know. And so we try to figure out how we can do that in our yeah. own little 30-minute slot. Or in this case, in the pilot's version, an hour. An hour, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> why, why was it an hour? You know, I felt like with the other shows we've had, I feel like, you know, People tend to not give us the benefit of the doubt. Like they'll see something and they'll think like, "Oh God, this is disgusting," and and they and they won't have faith that there's like heart or intelligence yeah. behind it. And so for me, watching just kind of the other shows, I'm like, man, it usually takes people about two or three episodes to kind of see what we're doing. Maybe we should just like put it all down into this first episode and let this first one be longer so that we can set the table and introduce the audience to these characters and let them have some fun without it just being, you know, 30 minutes of wall-to-wall -wall exposition yeah. where characters are all meeting each other. And especially with this one, because it is an ensemble, it's like you throw all these characters into a scene together. There's five people. If everybody talks twice, it's already like a two-page scene, you know? So <laughs> the real estate is hard to manage. You shot this pilot and then it was picked up, or do you already have the series? Uh, we shot the pilot and then it was picked what, did, what just, did you learn from the pilot? You know, like uh, Casey Blois, who runs HBO, he, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, he really wanted us to do a pilot because he just thinks it's a helpful step, you know, where you can flex and kind of see what, uh, you know, what works creatively, what doesn't, what actors are going to pan out, which ones aren't. Uh, so I think it was it was good to be able to shoot that pilot and then have something that you could show the other writers in the room of like, this is exactly what we're going for. You know, I think that with uh, with Vice Principals, when we were creating that whole thing, we had at least the screenplay yeah. that people could read to see what the tone was. But uh, so I think in that sense, it was a way to be able to share the vision with the other people that were going to be involved with the show. You've you've talked about how TV allows you to do the type of there, especially in comedy, the type of thing you'd like to do. Where movies, the beats would be more predictable, right? You have a bad person at the beginning; they will get slightly better over the time. They'll backslide and then they will get better this this is how major movies if you're allowed to make a movie this way do you feel like you would or at this point you're so used to sort of having so many colors you know what i i wrote a screenplay with Edie patterson who plays judy right after we did vice principles i like i was like man after coming off that show i'd love to just try to crack a screenplay and man we wrote it in like two weeks it was seemed so easy <laughs> to like tackle a movie yeah. compared to like structuring and outlining a whole like Universe, series yeah, yeah. yeah but um I just don't know what the audience is for it now. It's like I don't feel like people show up for comedies anymore despite if they're good or not. And uh, 
It doesn't seem like it's something that studios want to spend money on. And you just get to avoid a lot of the pitfalls of if you want to do something that's outside the box, that stuff just doesn't survive in the marketplace right now. Uh, The marketing departments of these studios, they need to be able to like, there's so much competition for people's eyeballs. They need to like clearly be able to define what it is they're asking people to show up for. And if you want to make something outside the box, that's a very hard process to get a story through. You would rather, obviously, stay true to whatever the thing that you want to be totally. doing. Totally. Yeah. So uh, we started this, and we, we were talking about the first shot of the pilot. And I thought a nice way, to, as we get to the end, is to talk about the last shot of the pilot. So, Or the la- last sort of scene. You go from John Goodman watching a tape of him and his wife, and he's sort of smiling, and then he sort of starts crying, and then you shoot him through a door. But you keep this t- sound of the sort of tape of him and his wife going as you cut to... The, the car in which the, the siblings are in, first you have Adam Devine's character and he's sort of really <laughs> crying. Then you pan up to the front and um, Judy and Jesse are looking out forward. They're kind of distraught and Judy looks at Jesse. Jesse sort of looks at the side mirror then looks forward. That is the end of the pilot. Walk me through why that's how you decided to end it. You know, it's like at the point, it's just with a pilot, you're trying to not only sell the audience on why they should tune in, but you're trying to sell the network on why they should (laughs) buy it and and keep it going. And so for me, it just, I don't know, it just seemed like a perfect sort of moment to kind of allude to the idea that, you know, there's tough, there's tough times ahead for this crew yeah. and, and where are they heading and what's going to happen next. And, uh, and I felt like visually that stuff was doing that without any dialogue, without any sort of like tease and in like a conversation just you know here's the the patriarch of the family who's like clearly stuck in the past and and not sure if he has the the strength to move forward and then here are these siblings who have uh you know bonded together (laughs) to get their family into a lot of trouble yeah and and where is that going to take things yeah and it's also it's a you you know we talked about condemning characters or not you instead of condemning them by just showing you know not to spoil what exactly happens, but something terrible happens. And you could have ended it on that, right? There's a scene, the scene right before it, you sort of, you pan out and you see sort of there's this parking lot. And that is how a show like this can end. You're like, what's going to happen? But you don't do that. Instead, you're like, these are people that feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that that's ultimately like, maybe it's like the arrogance of what we're doing. But the ultimate that like you could show people do that. And at the end of the day, you're still wanting the audience to get behind them. <laughs> <Yeah. journey. laughs> like, oh, they feel bad for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. Is there uh, another TV show or movie that you wish you could have made and you could, you've made it your way? You just, you're like, oh, that idea is good. I wish I can do it. And then sort of what would it have been like? Gosh, that's hard. Uh, Man, I find myself like, and it's really lame, but I find myself watching so very little of what's out there. I almost get like overwhelmed by how much is there. And then I write on this stuff all day long. The last thing I kind of want to do is like go home. It could be old too. It does be an old Thing, uh, if you want to reboot it, I mean, I, you know what? I I feel like when I watch something like Goonies or even like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like to me, those just feel like perfect movie experiences. Like something like Goonies just feels like, man, that would have been insane to have 
been a kid and in that movie, like on those sets with all that yeah. action and uh, and even something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like I don't know what the production was like of that, but I look at that and I'm like, man, that just looks like they are having a blast. So you wish you can do it. Same exact movie, but you're just also around. <laughs> yeah, I'm just in it. That would all be the only thing I would change. I would be Cameron. You know, you guys will talk about how you, you'll have uh, certain sort of fucked up ideas. You're like, oh, this is funny. Let's see if we can put it in. Is there an idea that you're like, that is too much. An audience will never be able to recover of any of your projects. I don't underestimate the audience that way. I don't <laughs> think uh, – you know what? I don't think there's hardly anything that we've – want it to do that we haven't tried to do. Uh, yeah, I don't think that there, I mean, we had like one storyline in Eastbound and Down where like Kenny Powers like takes these Satanists to church and like curbs them on the altar. That <laughs> never made it past the outline phase sure. with HBO. But I think that's like the only time. And I think we were purposely trying to be uh, difficult with that storyline. Uh, since there's multiple uh, ones in some episodes, there's about an, one dick per episode Lots in the of show. dicks, yep. Um, as pretentiously as possible, explain what they symbolize. <laughs> I, uh, for some reason, like I was talking to Jody David about it. I'm like, I feel like seeing Dick is like an Old Testament kind of thing. It feels like there was lots of like male genitalia back in the day. And uh, yeah, and so I think it just turned into something where David and uh, and Jody and myself just kind of like there would be stuff where there would be dicks in scenes that were never written to be in the scenes. I just show like, oh, David's deciding that he's going to have the dude's cock out on this. <laughs> OK. And uh, and I think we were hearing how many dicks Euphoria had and we wanted to just compete with them. There you go for the HBO press <laughs> rep here. You've told the story about how Kanye flew to to South Carolina because he felt you would be good at playing him, which I also think. But why? Why do you think you'd be good at playing Kanye? I don't know, man. I I feel like it's he, what he was referencing was like he saw a uh, he saw similarity in energy between some of these characters and and his persona. I think. Yeah. And so I thought that inter- that idea was kind of interesting. Yeah, the ego. It's like a the way he uses ego. Um, do you have a scene from any of your things that you wish you could redo for whatever reason? I've not examined my work enough to be able to uh, to be able to decide that. I mean, honestly, like I'll make this stuff and I'll never watch it again after we're out of the edit room. Like I have people coming up to me all the time, like quoting things from Eastbound or from movies, and I'll just turn to my wife, like, "What the fuck does that person just say?" You know, and she's like, "I think they were referencing something you've said before." And I'm like, "What? I, I said that." Uh, yeah, I never watch any of this stuff when I'm done. I live it so much when I'm making it yeah. that when it's over, I'm I'm like over with it. I'm done with it, you know. So I guess then the question is, what at this when you think of these projects, what is the first thing that let's let's go through a project, see what the first thing that comes to mind because okay. that's really interesting. Foot fist way. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind with that is Jody and I standing like on the porch of uh, of his parents' duplex that they owned, like celebrating and getting drunk, like the moments we fin after we finished yeah. filming that. I think that was like my greatest elation of anything I've ever done, you know, that was made with like kids in college and, <laughs> and people unemployed and for, you know, 10 bucks basically. And yeah. I think when we finished that, it was so such an awesome feeling. Uh, Eastbound and down? Just fun. I mean, like Eastbound was just, you know, that was every summer we were getting together in Wilmington, North Carolina with all the guys we went to college with. And every summer we got back together, somebody else was married, somebody else had kids. So that show to me kind of represents like all the changes that have sort of happened in my life. Starting that off in the beginning when we had nothing going on and we weren't sure if we'd even make a season. And by the end of it, like I have a kid and I'm married <laughs> and everything's changed. Uh, Your Highness? Uh 
That was uh, ahead of its time. I really feel like that. I think uh, I, I stand behind that movie one hundred percent. We made something really special that I just like. I hope in due time it gets its uh, it gets its desserts. Uh, vice principals. I think of Walton when I think of vice principals. I mean, uh, he's become a lifelong friend of mine, and I just think he's so incredible. And uh, yeah, whenever I think of that show, I think of him. Halloween. Oh. Uh, Probably like meeting John Carpenter and uh, and even just getting to play around with a genre like horror, something I've grown up loving and, and seeing how different that is to work on and how similar it is. This is the end? I feel like that signified the end of like a, a big chapter in my career of just making all those awesome R-rated comedies when, when studios would still pay for those big R-rated yeah. movies. You know, that was just an absolute blast. And what from the first season of Gemstones is the thing that jumps out at you? I think it's just the camaraderie. I think it's the idea of like doing what we're doing and now looking around and there's someone like John Goodman standing there that's doing it as well. And uh, I think it's just kind of like mind blowing a little bit. It's how much things change, but how much they ultimately stay the same. All right. What a way to end. (laughs) That's it for another episode of Good One. The Righteous Gemstones airs Sundays on HBO. Danny is not on social media. Must be nice. Good one is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godwin Shrikishin did our theme song. Write, review, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good one is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.